A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. It's a large book. Adam Tooze wrote a very, very large book. It literally bent my bookshelf, though, in fairness, I installed the shelf myself, and I'm not a great craftsman. My point is that if you want to understand the politics, finance, and economics of the last 10 years, you should read all of the pages in Mr. Tooze's very large book. It's called Crashed. This is Alpha Chat, a project from the Financial Times and the Rhodes Center for International Economics and Finance at Brown University. I'm Brendan Greeley. This week, Mark Blythe of the Rhodes Center and I met at Fairweather Hall at Columbia University, where on the fourth floor we found Adam Tooze in his library. He teaches history. Do you remember the library from Beauty and the Beast? It's a little bit like that. There's a ladder. You can take all that reading, though, and you can go farther back than a decade. A lot of things we see now in economic time series data go back several decades. Things start to shift around 1980. Union membership, inequality, debt levels. But when I brought this up, Mr. Toos corrected me. It wasn't 1980. That's just a political shorthand. That's too easy. It started before that. American history, you know, really splits at the bicentennial. For the first 200 years of America's history, the American dream is approximately true, as true in America as it's ever been anywhere on the planet. And since 1976, for huge chunks of American society, it's just ceased to, to function. That reality is trickling down. No matter where we started talking with Adam Tooze, we ended up at China. We'll get there in a bit, but we started at Davos. Yes, Davos. He just returned. We asked him about ideas, the things that for those same last four decades, the kinds of people who go to Davos have learned to believe. They genuinely believe that. I mean, Davos is adorned with all these incredibly ill-posed questions. Like, how do we make a economy that works for 8 billion people? How do we design globalization 4.0 as though it was a software update? You know, there's this extraordinary sense that it's a problem within their grasp that they can fix. There's basically a total lack of social theory, even of the modernization uh, type. But is that because, in a sense, what happened in the 1990s in particular was the abolition of politics in favor of policy? Yeah, I think that's right, that this is, a, this, this is what fills that fills that vacuum. I mean, even... Wait, I'm sorry, I have to jump in. I don't understand what that means. What I mean by that is that everything became a technical question rather than a political question. Which takes all the values that are inherent in all of your technical decisions and makes them disappear. Yes, but also it, it means there's no room for social movements. It means there's no room for an actual organized politics. The idea that this group has an interest which is necessarily opposed to this one simply becomes a question of, well, we have a problem. We all agree with the problem. It's how do we get the kind of Pareto superior move where yeah. everybody's better off? And this endless insistence on positive sum solutions, which of course then requires a technician to define what it is and avoids ever having to confront the fact that some solutions might simply be better for some people rather than others, in which case it's a distribution issue, it's a question of power, and it's a question of politics. So, but this is, when we talk about Econ 101, we're really talking about a very specific kind 
of discipline that was taught in colleges in the 80s and in the 90s and in the early 2000s. Um, and it said basically that power dynamics don't exist, that if you, you enter into every contract freely and of your own volition, and that uh, you know, if you're paid a wage, it must be because that wage reflects your you know, marginal productivity, your marginal contribution to the firm I mean, that for that particular wage. idea goes back 100 years. It doesn't go back to the, it goes back to the 1880s and 1890s. It's at the origins of academic economics as it's currently taught. So I wanted to start at Davos, but let's, let's, let's do that then. Let's walk back 100 years. Um, I apologize to listeners in advance and talk about how this shift happened because the two of you, when you sit in this unbelievable library where we're sitting right now in Columbia, you talk about Econ 101 and you put it in scare quotes. Um, I don't think that's immediately clear to everybody who's listening what that means. So, you know, what, what is the creation of Econ 101 and why are we so ill-served by it now? God, this is a huge question. Econ 101, I think, is textbook standard economics. It's broadly speaking neoclassical. It carries an extraordinary ideological charge because it does indeed base itself on the assumption of individual free will and contract as the basic organizing idea. I'd say it acquired a particular force in the 80s, 1980s and 1990s because it was what emerged out of the sort of end of ideology, if you like. The de facto disempowerment of the left, uh, the, the expulsion from large parts of the social science academy by virtue of methodological demands which left-wing economics couldn't meet. And into that space then came this common sense, which frankly, centrist social democrats, centrist democrats were only too happy to own. And if you could then also get the endorsement of a major investment banker like a some of the Rubin or something like that, that would anchor the Democratic Party in a new power relationship with Wall Street, this all added up to a rather attractive package. And that is, I think, a common uh, sort of ideological move that you see in the Democratic Party, the British Labour Party, the German Social Democratic Party, uh, French Socialism as well, possibly there even starting earlier in the 1980s. And that's, I think, the kind of common sense which was really disrupted by the shocks of the last 10 years, not just the 2008 crisis, but the 2008 crisis at the center of all of that. So spell out for us how that common sense was disrupted, because for many people it hasn't been disrupted. So let's actually break that down. Yeah, so I mean, let's just take you know Jim Carville's deathless pronouncement from the 1990s, it's the economy stupid. I mean, I think most of our response now would be whose economy, which economy? are the basic questions. If you look at you know, the perhaps most important graph in recent economic history, which shows the divergence between productivity growth for labor and actual remuneration of your average American. And there's a big statistical argument about what is the best measure of that. But any of the statistical measures show a dramatic divergence between those two indicators. So what that's telling you is this thing, the economy, that for Carville was just a object and a process which defined the limits of what politics are or could be is in fact two very different things depending on whether you own capital in which case you're earning the benefit of the productivity increase or whether you're an ordinary working american in which case your income is limping along at historically unprecedentedly slow rates and for some many parts of the american population is declining or just plain static and so what the economy is, is coming apart. And 2008 demonstrated this particularly vividly because it then turned out that economic policy, it's the economy stupid, actually consisted of bailing out a large group of banks, businesses, not the economy, businesses who had shareholders that needed to be rescued. 
So one of the flaws of Econ 101 is that it, it looks at the mean, at the aggregate. It looks at yeah. one single number that describes what's happening to everyone. Is it fair to say that when James Carville said that in 1990 or 1994, whenever it was, that at the time, it was a more reasonable assumption than it is now? All these trends that we've seen of divergence among the, the various quintiles uh, of, of American earners were not as pronounced in the 90s, though when we can look back now and see how obvious that looks from the, from the early 80s. Well, I think in fairness... To him, you could make that argument, but in fact, almost all of those trends originate in the 1970s. Perhaps the kindest thing one could say about the Clinton administration was that it was actually still attempting to stitch that back together again. Notably, of course, healthcare is the big policy agenda of progressive Democrats, centrist or not, which would in fact make a very significant contribution to the livelihoods of average Americans. So they were in a sense still trying to rally the economy. But I think the situation that we're confronted with now is one in which that object has just become uh, largely meaningless for progressive politics to bite on. But let's go further because it's more than just the economy in the sense of its distributional content. Uh, we live in a world in which unless you're Brexit, Britain or Venezuela, it's almost impossible to find inflation. Mm -hmm. It's a world in which deficits really don't seem to matter, particularly if you have a key or reserve currency. How many sort of shibboleths have been knocked over in the past decade? Yeah, I mean, I would add to that the fact that gigantic expansion of central bank balance sheets uh, doesn't appear to cause hyperinflation. Um, and then you could add, I think, perhaps most disturbingly, uh, the, the, the breakdown of what is in some senses the last redoubt of neoliberalism, which is the assumption that growth is geopolitically neutral. In other words, growth is good for the West. The gods of economic growth are on our side. And what we've discovered is that a regime still run by what is a lineal descendant of 20th century communism is now the great driver of capitalist growth. And, and so, in fact, it does shift the power balance. And furthermore, since the Chinese have reinvented what we understand by growth, it's also blasting through the environmental envelope at a rate that no one could conceivably imagine previously. So all of those Malthusian nightmares come back to haunt us too. So it's a pretty comprehensive breakdown of key assumptions of that 1990s paradigm of uh, Econ 101. What has to happen for all of that to become apparent to a broader audience. So I noticed that on economics Twitter, um, there are things being discussed with assumptions of agreement among everybody um, that aren't that have not in any way penetrated members of my family. Mm -hmm. um, and so, uh, what is the process by which you take these things, which we now all know to be true, right? That there is no evidence. Again, to go back to James Carville, uh, that you know that if you spend massively, uh, that you're you're not going to be able to meet your debt servicing costs as a government, right? That's that thing that we assumed was going to be true in the '90s is not true. Yeah, him wanting to come back as the bond market because exactly. it could intimidate anyone. I mean, where have the bond vigilantes been in the last ten years? Right. So we know this this idea that you know that you, you can't expand a central bank balance sheet or you'll end up with uh, with Weimar era inflation. We have seen this to be true or not to be true, what has to happen in order for those assumptions that we share among academics, on Twitter, among some policymakers, uh, how does that become apparent to the people who make decisions about a democracy? Well, I mean, I think one shouldn't underestimate the radicalization that has happened. I mean, if you, you know, these are remarkable opinion poll results about the acceptability of socialism, uh, especially amongst younger Americans. Socialism now more popular than capitalism, for instance. Also, very widespread evidence for support for much higher taxation, for higher incomes. That all points to a deep down realization on the part of average Americans that the reality that we're describing is evidently the case, that, that they have had a really rough ride over the last 40 to 50 years. American history, you know, really splits at the bicycle 
bicentennial. It's a remarkable thing. For the first 200 years of America's history, the American dream is approximately true, as true in America as it's ever been anywhere on the planet. And since 1976, for huge chunks of American society, it's just ceased to, to function. That reality is trickling down. So go back to 1976. What started changing then that allows us to tell a fuller story than big, bad, nasty uh, Ronald Reagan? Well, I think the first globalization shock, right? That's the moment, really, the 70s, where you see the emergence of the first major Asian challenger. This is the moment where the center of gravity of key manufacturing sectors begins to shift away from the West. And the Japan shock, I mean, three big globalization shocks hit the US economy in succession, the Japan shock, the Mexico shock through NAFTA, and then the China shock. And the three of them combined with a variety of domestic changes at the same time cause an upheaval in manufacturing and industrial sectors and basically tear the ground out from underneath the organized labor movement in the United States, which had reconsolidated its position during World War II in the aftermath of that and had reached a kind of modus vivendi with corporate capital in the 50s and 60s, what we call the Great Compression, when American income inequality substantially reduced. And the 70s, I'd say the mid 70s are really the turning point. Apart from anything else, if you look outside the United States, you see the same trend everywhere in Western Europe. This is not by any means a merely American phenomenon. It's true in Britain, it's true in Germany, France. All of these countries are experiencing that kind of competitive pressure. The auto industry is the great symbol of this, the emergence of Japan as the you know premier motor car manufacturing country of the late 20th century. And so this is a really helpful frame, which is we every country tends to look back and see this in terms of their own party politics. So the ability to say, is it fair to say then when we look back over what shifted, we're looking at these three globalization shocks yeah. and the party politics is almost irrelevant. No, no, the party politics determines what the outcomes are, right? So how you react to this, if you look at inequality in France, for instance, post-tax inequality barely goes up. France experienced the globalization shock too. It has an auto industry too. Um, the most extreme case of this is the communist bloc, which also experienced this shock in the 70s and 80s. And in the end, that produced total regime crisis and collapse. Latin American economies experienced this shock. Africa's development also experiences a huge kink in the 70s and 80s. 50s and 60s is quite promising industrialization in, in Africa, comes to a sudden shocking halt in the 70s. So Politics is crucial in determining how you react to these kind of impulses. What we see in the United States is a domestic politics which amplifies these effects, feeds off them tactically and strategically, uses them to amplify these effects. And it's only when you put the two things together that you really understand this, because the globalization shocks by themselves are not big enough to explain the surge in inequality in the US. It's the concatenation, the linking together of both those elements, which which really produces the extreme result in the US that we've seen. So let's look at the China shock. Um, I think the Trump administration has admirably attempted to do something about trade with China. We can take issue with specific ways in which they've brought it up, but the fact that an administration is willing to say these are bad practices, and they've been bad practices for a very long time, and it's harmed a lot of Americans, is good instructive, important. It also feels a little bit like we're ignoring the lessons that the rest of the industrialized world has to offer for that same time period. Why was the U.S. so vulnerable to the China shock in ways that, say, Germany was not? Well, I mean, I think you have to look at the stripping away of the domestic social fabric that happens in the United States from the 1970s onwards. I mean, this is class politics superimposed on top of a massive generic globalization shock. I mean, Warren Buffett said it, you know, blurted it out. Yes, there's been a class war in the society. We've been waging it and we've won. In other words, us billionaires. 
this isn't to say that European societies don't have class politics. Of course they do, and they have massive inequality as well. But it hasn't been, they have not seen the kind of open contestation and really brutal struggle and inequality enhancing actions that the US has. To go back to your earlier point though, I, I actually would tend to agree. I wouldn't put it quite so positively. But I do think that what's significant about the Trump administration is that it registers the historic scale of these events. I mean, global steel production doubled between 2000 and 2012, 13, 14. Now, that isn't the right place to start a policy to protect American manufacturing because it actually enables American manufacturing to use cheap raw materials. But it is a world historic shock of epic proportions, which is sort of standard loosey-goosey liberalism, which says all growth is good and we embrace it all, just doesn't appreciate the significance of. We tend to think of the China shock as something that happened and is now over. Yeah. But I think that they look at the sort of lowest productivity industries and, you know, molded plastic, right? And they grab those. They grab, they took the plastic jewelry industry from uh, the, the area in Providence where Mark is. Um, but they're after other industries as well, right? American tool makers have been relatively shielded by this because tools are difficult to make well. Yeah. Yeah. But that's not going to be true forever. China's going to figure out how to make tools and they're going yeah. to figure out how to make much more complex machines. And they're going to make them every bit of productively and efficiently as we do in the US. And in and of itself, that's not a problem. That's welfare enhancing for the globe, right? This is why China has you know, brought hundreds of millions of people out of poverty. The fact that the Chinese are getting very good at making highly sophisticated tools should be a cause for celebration because they'll make renewable energy equipment too at rapid rates that the United States may never do because the politics are different. So I don't buy the argument that that by itself is a threat. It does, however, mean that the United States, if it had a concerted labor market, market and social and economic and education policy would need to brace, brace, brace to make the necessary adjustments and ensure that the highly skilled workers who are currently in those jobs have equivalent places to go next, right? And don't just end up on the historic scrap heap. But the United States is not alone in facing this problem. If you look at the main targets of, you know, the Made in China 2025 program, it's South Korea and Germany, which are much more vulnerable than the US, because basically the damage is already deemed done in the US and the US is now an overwhelmingly service sector economy. So it, it has less to lose um, than it once might have. The tech sector is, of course, the jewel in the crown, but that's a very different type of battle. And it's not really about jobs. It's about command of key technologies. It's about control of pre huge profit segments. And it has geopolitical significance because everyone assumes that this is the core of military power in the new century. But to go back to something Adam Posen said on a podcast a couple of weeks ago, if you think about it in terms of, let's say, shareholder value and differential growth, U.S. companies are dependent on particular IPs, intellectual property, therefore the U.S. government will struggle to protect us. Well, if the defined constituent is basically shareholders, but if you look at it in terms of per capita income growth, if you look at it in terms of standards of sort of living a decent life, then the model that we're defending against China has already failed on multiple counts. There's also this way in which we tend to think that China's doing this terribly unfair thing to us. Well, the other thing that comes out of Providence is the Slater Mill. The Slater Mill, meaning technology stolen from the UK in the 19th century and imported yeah. by an apprentice to America. Exactly. So, so, so the policy seems to be based upon a world that can't exist, one where information is a private good and can forever be protected. What the United States should be doing, in fact, is pushing out the technological frontier as far as it can through basic investments in R&D of the type it used to do. And that way, China will never catch up, no matter how much IP they're stealing today. And and I'm just resistant to this entire competitive discourse. Humanity's only hope 
if we are going to avoid the catastrophe the climate change profits uh, you know are, are are pushing is that china develops its stem sector at you know, it continues to develop. It's at the pace it's developing right now. If America is by this sort of national competitiveness discourse and mercantilism driven to stimulate its efforts too, that'll be a bit like the space race in the 50s and 60s. It was good for big science. But that for me is the way in which I would like to see this, this question discussed. Evidently, the United States should be investing far more in basic research. It's an embarrassment, I think, now how far behind its spending is in key areas of that type. So that's the direction to go in. As for IP, I think right now it's a toss-up for American corporates about whether or not they're better off in a sort of national fortress or whether they wouldn't prefer, frankly, you know, taking their chances with the Chinese in various types of joint venture. Certainly, most of them, I think, would, would prefer probably to go down the joint venture route. I don't see Apple clamoring for protection. Uh, I don't see any of the American chip uh, companies really doing that. Right? They, they know that their IP security does not depend on the protection of patents. It depends on you know, much more direct mechanisms uh, for controlling, you know, technology and in information that depends basically on corporate security and IT security, cyber security in their in their firms, because the patents are really just uh, window dressing, right? The the actual hardcore of information is different, and that can be shared in various relationships with Chinese firms on which they make profit. I mean, America has America American capital has enormously profited from from Chinese growth, and it was planning to go on doing so. It's actually fascinating that no matter what we start talking about in this conversation, we end up talking about China. Mm. Um, the conversation thus, thus far has been about um, Chinese productivity and Chinese supply. Um, one of the things that you point out in your book uh, is that the Chinese manufactured demand. They became the only source of demand at a very critical point in 2008, 2009, 2010, something that's not properly appreciated uh, in, you know, when we think about what our own central banks did in the West. Um, walk us through what they did, because I think that's really important to point out to, uh, to, to anybody not familiar with this history, which is that in, in a way, China saved the world. Yeah, I mean, I think in fairness to the Americans, you should, one should add that the other source of demand in the world economy was the US. It's just that the shock to the US economy was so savage that even with the offset provided both by the incontinent fiscal policy of the late Bush administration and the Obama administration's stimulus, it still wasn't enough to offset uh, the decline in the US economy. But there's a very significant, historically significant stimulus in the US in 09. But yes, China's effort is even more amazing and all the more remarkable for the fact that, of course, in the Chinese case, there isn't really a distinction between the public and the private. Now, in the West, what we obsess about is this thing called the multiplier, which is a classic Keynesian liberal idea. It's the question of how much bang you get for a government dollar. So if you put a government dollar in, how many private dollars do you get in extra economic activity? That's a liberal question because it starts from the premise that they're different. Private money and public money are not the same. In China, of course, that doesn't hold. What China did is something that's much more familiar from you know, Europe and the United States in the 1950s, where you would see the government on the one hand doing fiscal policy, so tax and spend policies on the one hand, but also essentially issuing instructions to the key banks, in the Chinese case, the big policy banks, to set credit targets. And, and what the People's Bank of China did is simply say, like, we want to see this much lending. And they delivered. Uh, and from the bottom up within the Chinese uh, state apparatus, which is, of course, always a party apparatus. And when we say the bottom up in China, you know, the constitutive entities are the size of European states. 
80 million people, 100 million people. Like it's a chunk. You know, some of these things are as large almost as the United States. These local governments then feed through to the center hugely ambitious investment programs, which are themselves then funded by by credit. So you get both, you get monetary policy and fiscal policy acting. If you put the two together, we end up with a stimulus which is on the scale of a wartime effort. It's on easily on the scale of any of the big pushes of the Maoist or the Stalinist era. And the consequences in terms of, you know, real material production are astonishing. It's China used between 2011 and 2013 50% more cement than the United States in the entire 20th century. 50% more cement than the United States in the entire 20th century used in China in three years. That's the kind of hit that you get from that kind of effort. And the effect this had on the rest of the world was? It created demand for all of the inputs to heavy industry, raw materials, uh, oil, iron ore, copper, but then also motor cars. Between 2004 and 2015, 16, um, Chinese demand for motor vehicles quintuples. Uh, by 16, 2016, 27, GM is selling more cars in China than it is in the United States. Uh, and that feeds through to the Americans, the Japanese, the South Koreans. Everyone's in on this game. If you look at VW's profit, if you look at GM's profit, the, its bottom line is massively sustained by Chinese demand. Apple's iPhone success is both a European and American story and a Chinese story. But Adam, surely going back to Econ 101, you recognize the folly in all this. So the folly, of course, is you mentioned that if you massively expand central bank balance sheets, you'll end up with hyperinflation. Only we didn't. Is there a certain amount of crowing going on in the same direction with China? Because for the past four years, I'm sure you're the same. You keep getting asked about, but hasn't China overextended itself? Aren't their credit markets a disaster? Isn't there a hard landing or a big reckoning for them? What do you think? Well, there is that risk. I don't think one should deny it. The, the Chinese are, in fact, remarkably frank about it. And we've seen for the last couple of years that they're engaged in a very serious effort to sort of dry out some of that swamp. They have all sorts of colorful names for bits of the financial sector they don't like. We have a huge, in the West, a huge amount riding on the assumption that Chinese technocrats are basically superhuman uh, and are going to be able to ride this tiger. The crucial economic qualification to add, though, is that this wasn't an economy even close to full employment at the time that the stimulus was used. Not in the sense that there's lots of people registered as unemployed in China, but that they still have a reserve army of very low productivity workers in the agrarian or sub-agrarian sector of the Chinese hinterland. Um, and that creates the possibility for growth even without running up against you know, massive inflationary hurdles. And, and a lot of the price and wage increase that's going on in China is in fact just simply the fruit of economic growth. Wages in China are no longer cheap in the big manufacturing sectors. They're well above those in places like Vietnam and their immediate neighborhood, which of course then again creates positive spillover. It's it's difficult, in a sense, for liberals not to own this story. It looks like a dramatic story of a whole bunch of free lunches um, being driven by demand stimulus. And I think one should grant that. The problems are, of course, in what the fallout from that kind of growth might be, both environmental, geopolitical, and indeed in managing its cyclical elements. And one of the other aspects that's interesting there is uh, recently there's a book uh, you talked about uh, about Brett Christopher's about uh, this massive sell-off in public assets in the United Kingdom over the past 40 years. And the one thing you cannot accuse China of is basically getting rid of public assets. 
Well, it's a very complicated story. They go through waves, right? So the, the Chinese story of the 1990s is in fact that of a brutal uh, uh, shedding of public assets, right? So there's a huge catastrophe, really, of jobs in the in the old Maoist era. What they have, of course, is enormously rapid growth in the rest of the economy. So those people are redeployed. But there are a large part. There is a Chinese Rust Belt with millions of people languishing in poverty, and you know. But the difference I meant by that was more along the lines of it's a balance sheet. That is to say, everyone's obsessing with China's liabilities, but what about the asset side of the balance sheet? And that asset side is quite large. Yes, it is indeed. And and the investment in real assets is absolutely massive. And one should add that this story of stimulus from 2008-9 is a political story. I mean, this is a fully political economy. This is a This is a story about the Chinese Communist Party struggling for new alliances with new key interest groups in China, with the oligarchs, both at the national and the global level and the regional level. This is a, you know, a transparent mechanism of the mutual enrichment and empowerment of the Communist Party and this new middle and upper middle class that China is creating. So this is, again, you know, very puzzling in a sense for, for the standard kind of 1990s happy-go-lucky story of how you know Chinese growth and integration in the world economy will in the end produce demands for the rule of law and the Chinese Communist Party will see the error of its ways and forgive and you know ask for forgiveness for Tiananmen Square. And that doesn't appear to be the that doesn't appear to be the deal at all. This is in fact an extraordinarily powerful kind of more typical story of of a state growth, uh, empowerment, and in class formation that we see in the 19th century, and often that's bloody. In fact, didn't you say at one point in the book, if I remember this correctly, that the only difference between this type of coalition building and what we saw in earlier phases of industrial capitalism was the fact that the military was involved, whereas this time the military really isn't involved. These are just predominantly civilian coalitions. Well, it's interesting. I think that's a, a, a moving feast. If you look at the Soviet period of the 1930s or the Nazi regime, those are classically military-centered, rearmament-centered stories. And the way that you would index that is that the military share in government spending and GDP increases. That's not what we see in China in 2008, 9, 10. Now, with Xi, the balance has shifted. Uh, the PLA was never absent. The, the People's Liberation Army was never absent from the political industrial story in China. It was always there. In that period, however, it was going through some fairly substantial retrenchment. What the Chinese military have to do is actually acquire some tech. They need to upgrade themselves. They can't be the old Cold War revolutionary army of old. And they've seemed to have shifted gear more recently. And we are now beginning to see military spending creeping up. But the thing about China is that the, the denominator is increasing so fast that, you know, unless military spending increases, it would crash as a share of GDP. Unless they constantly raid wages for soldiers, they wouldn't be able to recruit anyone, right? Because the, the standard of living of the Chinese middle class is rising so rapidly. So just to, as it were, tread water, the Chinese military needs to massively increase its spending. Um, if you, that's what happens if you have 7% per annum growth, right? Um, so, but we are now, I think one has to say, under Xi seeing a very concerted shift. And China is using its enormous economic platform to assert you know, national interests, regime interests in its immediate vicinity at the very least. You know, there's a story about the China shock in the United States where uh, that goes like this. We wanted to integrate them into the global economy. We thought that that would be good towards uh, moving them towards democracy as well. Uh, and so we opened up uh, our economy to them and uh, they took advantage of us. Things didn't work out the way we planned. We weren't quite prepared for the size of the shock, and so it didn't work out. But, you know, at least um, it, it was sort of it was good for economic growth in China. Uh, 
I think when we say we, we're missing who actually benefited and who didn't benefit. And I think that there was a romance in the early 2000s between a certain group of Americans. Um, you know, when we talk about manufacturing in China, that was U.S. companies, yes. which moved their manufacturing yeah. to China, continued to own that capital structure, but yeah. had less expensive workers. Yeah. Um, Hank Paulson would be another classic example, right? The romance of the investment banker. Well, exactly. That's the other group of people that I wanted to bring up, which is that when we talk about you know, the privatization of state-owned companies in China, what we're really talking about is non-controlling shares of those companies were made public on U.S. capital markets using U.S. expertise paying U.S. fees while retaining control of the Chinese Communist Party. So there was a certain romance between groups of people in America who really did very well during the China shock and who helped create the China shock. Universities, it has to be said, have also been beneficiaries of this throughout the Western world, particularly in the Anglosphere, particularly in the UK and the United States. Chinese students have made a, you know, an extraordinary contribution to our classes. They pay enormous fees. And again, it's part of a, again, a, 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 it's more than just simply a bargain. It is, romance is a strong word perhaps, but it's a vision of a kind of integration um, that you know, many people profit from. That specific vision that many people profit from, has it changed? How has it changed in the last decade? I do think the, the mood has darkened. I mean, I think the best reporting from Washington DC suggests that, you know, that the push by the Trump administration to uh, raise tension to pose the strategic question is not being resisted by American corporates in the way that you would expect. I think the mood in academia is darkened as well as our preoccupation with civil rights has returned. Right, I, we parked the civil rights question. You know, there was agony of, of course in the aftermath of Tiananmen Square, but by the mid '90s, we'd kind of put that on the back burner. I think there is a real sense over the last couple of years that many of those questions are coming back. Real hard questions are being asked in the university sector as well about the terms under which Chinese students come to the West and the pressure that they're put under and that their families are put under uh, to cooperate with the regime. Um, so there is, I think, a sense that the gloss has come off this, this romance a little bit. Um, we're perhaps being more realistic. I think there's also a sense that the regime has changed, right? The, the, the project of the, of the Xi administration is, I think, the reassertion of the control of the Communist Party um, in a whole variety of different ways that we're just seeing mapped out. And you talk to Chinese students about this, you talk to China experts, the path ahead is not clear at this point. It's not obvious that they got a clear blueprint, but I think it would be naive not to recognize the shift. Hank Paulson is a great example. You know, you brought him up earlier. He was an investment banker, was a treasury secretary, and has been the one perhaps most prominently in Washington sounding the alarm. Yes. I mean, I think Hank Paulson was brought in specifically in 2006 to, as it were, manage the pressure that was building up then within American politics over the China shock. Because Congress was full of bills at that moment asking for the treasury to take action against China at a time when China really was manipulating its currency. It no longer is in the sense that it used to. Um, it isn't any longer uh, trying to prevent its currency from going up, right? It's trying to manage its decline. And so Paulson was a pivotal figure in that. And I agree, I think in the last uh, year or two, he's moved to a much darker position. I think he's still in the he's still in the game. What Paulson is trying to do is to get both sides to take seriously the sources of tension here. But I agree that there's, there's been a shift in the mood music. 
But if I go back to your book, one of the things that you point out when talking about China is that the notion that the West has in its head that China is this export-driven, trade-balanced, dependent country is completely false. That, in fact, its trade-to-GDP uh, ratio peaked in, it was either 2006 or 2008. Their whole stated aim since 2008, all the way through the stimulus, the shock, the, the financial crisis, was to become a much more consumption-driven economy, to raise real wages by reducing saving or the propensity to save. And they've done all that so to a certain extent are we in a sense asking them to do some to get to a place where they already are or they already are heading yeah i mean the the china american bilateral trade surplus is hugely misleading as to the overall state of the chinese economy the where many people are predicting the chinese current account deficit uh once you factor in the entire rest of the world in the nearish future um, China already runs deficits with many of its East Asian neighbors because it's become a higher income country importing ch cheap parts from places like Vietnam. So, yeah, that's really one of those instances of the way in which kind of an old factoid can continue to circulate through the policy-making circuit in a way which is completely out of kilter with is this the reality. Last, is this, to go back to our early conversation, is that the last shibboleth? The, the, the bilateral it, trade balances are what they appear to be? Yeah, I mean, bilateral trade balances certainly are, you know, a great source of economic myth-making. Um, this does, shouldn't, shouldn't detract from the fact that there was a phase in which this was a key element of the Chinese story, in the same way as it was for Japan, and the same way as it periodically is for Germany. Uh, within the Eurozone, for instance, you know, the Germans uh, exerted huge pressure on the rest of the Eurozone broadly from about 2002-03 all the way through to 2013, but right now they're not. But there, as it were, it's it's at a very high level. So the same, I think, is true for China. Um, but there, the growth dynamic is so massive that the denominator GDP is increasing so fast that the share of trade in GDP is pretty much constantly falling currently. The shibboleth that Mark's talking about, I just have to, to, to go back for a second, is, is this idea that trade balances or trade imbalances don't matter. There's the famous Paul Samuelson quote. He says, you know, I have trade imbalances with, uh, with my barber. But that doesn't really make sense because if you take that metaphor with a barber, you know, if you have a trade imbalance with your barber of $20 a month when you go in for your haircut, that's okay. If you have a trade imbalance with your barber for $100,000, that might be an indicator that there's something else going on and that you don't have a normal flow of goods among different people in the service economy in Cambridge, Massachusetts. And so this idea that, um, and we hear it all the time now, uh, if you are on econ Twitter, um, th this conversation is current every day that trade balances or trade deficits don't matter, but they do. They are an indicator of something. Well, it depends. I mean, the difference is, as it were, what is your overall imbalance? So the bilateral as opposed to multilateral imbalance is a key issue. So do you run a trade deficit with your barber, your grocer, with everyone, right? Paul Samuelson famously, of course, would run a surplus with Harvard or MIT, whoever right. employed yeah. him, and that paid for all the other imbalances. I dare say he had a net surplus overall. I imagine his net worth was pretty substantial, especially with his publisher. He would have run a pretty substantial trade surplus. That's that's the way these things these things work so, their sorry, way just out. Jump in and explain. Paul Samuelson is the 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 author of the definitional economics yeah. textbook of the 20th century. So, and the other thing, of course, is whether you you know you have a trade imbalance with your barber or whether you have have a trade imbalance, say, with a bank that's financing you in the purchase of your family home, right? Which again is just a classic way in which debt is not necessarily some kind of huge obstacle to progress. It's an essential element in a long-run strategy of 
spreading your income over a period of time and investing in capital goods you can't afford all at once. So those are the sorts of things that you have to evaluate before jumping to alarmist conclusions about any of these kinds of And the very simple one is the one that you pointed out earlier, Brendan. I mean, there's a large part of this trade devs, I think Apple, are American corporations who have went to China to make things in China to sell to Americans. And that shows up as a trade deficit. Well, they're still remitting the profits back to the US. Well, except so they're how, not. How they they tire Ireland. Ireland. I know yeah, they're all in Ireland. Yeah, we know that. Yeah. Right, but that's yeah. a key element. I mean, Brad Setz of the Council of Foreign Relations has done great work on this. There are elements of the American balance of payments, which is when you put the trade in the all the other flows on the current account and then relate those to the underlying capital flows that are explicable in those terms. In other words, an American corporate makes stuff in China to sell to the United States and never does remit the profit. It shows up on the corporation's balance sheet, so it's actually there, and in fact is increasing the asset values of American shareholders, so it shows up there, but it never shows up as a flow into the US economy on the balance another, of payments. Another one that's like that is, uh, so you mentioned earlier Chinese students coming to Western universities. Well, that shows up as um, a services export yes. in the balance of national accounts. Yeah. So how do you net that one out? Well, you do. I mean, what you do is you net that out on the current account because the current account includes manufacturing trade on the one hand and flows of service revenue and also income on previous investments. And if you look at that kind of balance, then China is even more rapidly moving to a current account deficit because it has a large trade deficit in the services. Precisely because uh, it's sending students abroad, yeah. which we can then book on the other a side. A variety of, the of different things. A big black uh, kind of, you know, an item that we're a little unclear about called tourism, which we think includes a lot of capital flight, actually. Same is true for Germany. It has a big manufacturing trade surplus, but the same is not true on the service side. And so when you add those two things up, you end up with a more balanced picture. Let's go back. You do a great job in the book. Uh, a magisterial job in the book of explaining what's been happening for the last 20 years through international capital flows. That is not something that a lot of us think about. Even those of us who had Econ 101 and Econ 102 in college really still think of these very simple models of closed economies. Mm. Um, and I think politics is built around the assumption of a closed economy. You start with that closed economy, then there might be some trade, then there might be some in, you know foreign direct investment from abroad, but really you're just talking about this very simple model. Um, that's not what was happening at all over the last 20 years. So. Write the history of capital flows uh, over uh, the course of the last 20 years, because for somebody who hasn't read your book, that's it's incredibly important to understand that framework. Yeah, I mean, the, 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 I think there are two things operating. First of all, we start with the nation, and we do think in those terms. And then the next move that we make is out from there to trade. Trade is quite intuitive. In other words, you know, America doesn't grow bananas. It imports them from somewhere else, obviously. And then there's great cars that Germans make, so you buy some of those too, and then the Chinese, you know. So that kind of model of trade is very intuitive. And that then creates stories of complementarity or imbalance that we've been talking about. Um, what all of that obscures are what economists call the gross flows on the capital account. So, and those are offsetting movements of money back and forth between financial actors, which have a real counterpart somewhere a very long way down the line, but are basically balance sheet transactions of borrowing and lending, some of it based on derivatives trades, which are multiples of credits of various types. Um, which are conducted, as everyone's been saying for decades, across borders by transnational banks. It's just that having said that, we sort of park that cliche and never think about it again. Yeah, that's why it's so hard to explain to people what reinsurance is because they never encounter it in their daily lives. Yeah. But for if you look at the overall flows of money in and out of modern economies, particularly within the North Atlantic sphere, those flows of finance totally dwarf 
everything else going on at the time. You know, the flows of cars and other types of manufactured goods between the United States and Germany are do not, you know, measured in tens of billions a month, which is a lot until you look at, say, the flows in and out of a single big bank like Deutsche Bank, which has a $2 trillion balance sheet and will be moving hundreds of billions of dollars, just that one bank by itself, on any given day quite easily in large scale exchange rate transactions. Now, they don't show up. And a lot of the time, we tend to think they really don't matter because almost by definition, they offset. In other words, somebody's asset is another person's liability. The banks operate on the basis of balancing their books most of the time because they're not totally crazy. They don't want to run apocalyptic risk. And so what they will do is hedge, 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 hedge each transaction. So they'll take an offsetting deal uh, in another currency so as to minimize their risk. What happened in 2008 is that entire pyramid collapsed suddenly. And when it collapses, it doesn't collapse like deindustrialization, which happens over many years and you slowly shut factories. It literally matters. It's, it shuts down in a matter of hours. In fact, minutes when, the, you know, when it gets really bad. And so what we saw was a sort of cardiovascular shock, a collapse, a heart attack across this entire tightly integrated financial system. When we think about it publicly, we tend to start with the assets. Yeah. Uh, and I think that the thing that you've done in the book is flip that around and say there was a liability looking for an asset. So there was all this German, among other countries, investment capital coming yeah. to the United States. Step one is German capital is looking for investment. Ah, no, you see, it's even weirder than that. So we start with the assets in the sense we start with the mortgages and the houses, right? And then the question is how you fund that lending. And it really isn't helpful, I think, to think of this as German money. What the German banks were doing was just what any other bank was doing, which is borrowing to lend. And they borrowed all over the place. In fact, the most critical stuff, the stuff which became most dangerous, is the money that they borrowed from American money market mutual funds. So Deutsche Bank was literally operating as an American bank with no bricks and mortar branches in the United States. But that's just made it like in Lehman Bank, which didn't have any bricks and mortar branches in the Midwest either, but was nevertheless you know, up to its neck in the mortgage business. So European banks were part of the circular flow of credit of the American economy to an absolutely massive extent. In the final phases of the subprime securitization, the European players are a huge pipe all the way down to the dirtiest, grubbiest end of the pipeline, um, basically working with people like Countrywide and so on to source high-risk mortgages so as to generate the profits from, from pooling and tranching and pooling and tranching. So that, I think, is the better way to think of this as an integrated ecology in which European entities were merging funds generated in Europe and borrowing in the United States into balance sheets, which were a kind of hybrid mixture of both. So this international capital story becomes an international political story. Well, sort of, except that the, one of the great tricks of the financial crisis is to bury the politics. Absolutely. Mark has this great line about, you know, the greatest bait and switch in history, which you think of as the Eurozone crisis. My personal nomination for the greatest bait and switch in history would be the Fed's liquidity support for the global banking system. Um, more than half of the liquidity support provided by the Fed. These are not bailouts. This isn't capital stakes. These are collateralized loan that the Fed make. But in, the, in a banking run, what you need is liquidity first. Um, in other words, money now in exchange for things which are not money good at that moment. Um, more than half of the support the Fed provided was not to American banks at all. It was to European and Asian banks, overwhelmingly European banks. Um, and it did so with an 
absolute minimum of politics. I mean, I think you you think you'd have to try really hard to find a shred. There was occasional moments, queries in Congress about exactly what the Fed. Alan Grayson of Florida, who's widely dismissed as a crank, was the only person who I think really ever nailed Bernanke on this, and Bernanke immediately pleaded, you know, innocence. Really, and I think there was there was a lawsuit from Bloomberg. To mm-hmm. figure the, out the yeah. FIFA, FIFA request yeah, on yeah, FIFA, most of it. to yeah. force to force the Fed to disclose, and the Fed's position is, of course, that we never reveal the details of lender of last resort liquidity action because if you're exposed to the market, who it is who's desperate enough to avail themselves of your liquidity, it actually exposes those people to stigma, knowing that they will be stigmatized, they're less likely to take the money, and in a crisis, there's nothing worse than the bank that really needs your support refusing to take it because they're worried about stigma, and so to make sure that that they actually do avail themselves sufficiently, you, you keep shtum about the whole business. Now, of course, that's also very convenient from the point of view of both the Fed and the banks it's helping. But there's two things then that also go back to things that you brought up in the book. I mean, basically, the Fed becomes the global central bank, but no one's allowed to say that. Yeah. Number one. Number two, the reason that these financial flows become dangerous and the possibility of liquidity can so suddenly disappear is the D word, dollars that ultimately Deutsche Bank may be behaving like an American bank, but it can't get its hands on dollars because it's not an American bank. And the normal circumstances, of course, it can borrow like any bank can. The, the, and no bank, American or European, can get its hands on dollars, really, except the very, you know, JP Morgan was in a relatively strong position. So if you go talk to the bankers, they'll tell you all, you know, how they, in fact, were okay. But in general, everyone's shut down. So then the question is, can you get it from your local central bank? And of course, the ECB doesn't have. In fact, what's remarkable, what this exposes is just how under-resourced the European central banks were with reserves. I mean, everyone ahead of the crisis knew all about how big the Chinese and the Japanese reserves were, because that was a marker, essentially, of their kind of inferiority complex as emerging market central banks, because they'd been through the workout of the 1990s. That had been really painful. They'd suffered a shock to sovereignty. China was That was not going to happen with China. So China builds up this epic foreign exchange reserve. You know, if you ask economists, I have done this, like if you poll them and what they think the ECB's foreign exchange reserve was of dollars in 2000, hardly anyone can give you an answer. Everyone could give you a ballpark on China to the nearest trillion at least, but no one could give you that answer because the ECB just thought it could access markets yeah. any way it liked. And the answer is 200 billion. So, so in a sense, in a sense, and what the ECB was doing was exactly what Deutsche was doing, yes. which is exactly what the whole system was doing, yeah. which is assuming that liquidity yeah. is a permanent yeah. function of the market and there can yeah. never be a situation yeah. when it evaporates. And I actually put uh, a notable central banker on the spot about this and asked, so, you know, what on earth were you thinking? Like, this is crazy. Your personal reserves were in the tens of billions. And you were managed, you know, you were supposedly the backstop to a major global financial center. And he just looked at me and went, well, we just, you know, we never assumed there would be a problem in obtaining dollars. Adam Tews, thank you. Oh, thank you. Thank you. Alpha Chat is produced by Dan Richards at the Rhodes Center for International Economics and Finance at Brown University and Amy Keene from the Financial Times. There will be no show notes this week as I am on vacation. But as always, please tell us how you listen and what you want to hear at alphachat at ft.com. We're learning from that inbox that you're from all over the world. You can hear my accent. I'm obviously biased towards American topics, but we're going to work hard to make sure we cover the many other parts of the world, too. Also, a listener sent us a screen grab of a text he sent to a friend. All I can do here is quote that text in its entirety. 
Yo, the podcast FT Alpha Chat from Financial Times is crazy interesting discussion on a variety of topics. I'm finding it really refreshing and telling everybody, E-R-R-Y-B-O-D-Y, everybody. For my part, I promise to remember not to be lazy about China. There's a new story on China. It's the one we should be talking about. You guys, go tell everybody.